in church, if you would, keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be there this morning, uh, walking through that text a bit. But you know, we have entered into the, uh, the, the Christmas season. If you can't tell from the, the looks around here, uh, it's Christmas time, and uh, thankful for our, our ladies, uh, Nicole McHugh and my wife Jess, that came up last night to make this place look like the Christmas season. Um, and I say that, though, with, with fear and trembling this morning, because I've realized uh, in the last few years that even making that claim, that it's Christmas season, is, it's, it's quite controversial in our day and age. Like, there are, there are some of you this morning that would probably say, yeah, anytime after Thanksgiving, it's fair game, Christmas time. There's some of you that would say, uh-uh, not a day before December 1st. You, you can't have Christmas before December. And then there are others that as soon as Halloween's over with, you're already singing your Christmas tunes and giving the shaft to Thanksgiving, right? It just gets shafted. It's not even a holiday uh, because you've already got the Christmas tunes out. Either way, whether you consider it Christmas time yet or not, uh, we're starting our Advent uh, sermon series this morning because it is the first Sunday of Advent uh, in, the, in the liturgical uh, church calendar. And so we just finished First Timothy, studying through that book. And uh, just to let you kind of into my brain and heart where the Lord has my mind and, and, and has been leading and, and, and pushing me is, is for us to consider um, the incarnation this Christmas season, the birth of Jesus as a church to really focus on his coming uh, Emmanuel, and, 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 it's, and it's been six years since we've done this, uh, believe it or not. Um, not intentionally, but as we've been studying through books of the Bible, uh, we've gotten to Advent and we've just continued our sermon series, whether that's the, the book of Joshua or Deuteronomy or the book of Mark. We've just continued with the text that we've been in, but not this year. We're going to hit the brakes uh, and hit pause before going to 2 Timothy um, so that we can spend some time reflecting on and worshiping Christ for his coming for his being born in the flesh, to walk among us and to die in our place. And that's what Christmas should be, right? Like a time for us to, to slow down, to, to hit the brakes, to, to pause, to worship Christ for his coming. Uh, that he wouldn't leave us in, in sin, but that he would give his life as a ransom for ours. And yet I'm afraid that we're, we're dropping the ball here, church. Like not just the world, but even the church has missed opportunities and have allowed uh, this, this purpose, this main purpose of Christmas uh, to, to become lost. The significance of, of Jesus' birth to be, to be lost in the cultural moment and in, in the conversation that's going on around this, this time of the year. And not just that, that we would lose the, the, the birth of Jesus, like even the world I think still in some sort of way observes that, but that we've lost the meaning of the birth of Jesus and that baby in a manger, that he would come to be our savior and that he would, he would command that we give our lives, submit our lives to him and repent and follow him. You think about this this morning, kind of a strange illustration, but if, uh, if an alien were to load up into its little spaceship and travel to our planet, right? A highly intelligent alien and, uh, and to observe our planet and our, our, our customs, our traditions, knows nothing about our religions or our cultural practices. And this alien came in the month of December, and observed the whole month of December and then flew back to his little planet and gave a report, maybe wrote, wrote up something or just gave a, a, an oral report of these people on earth in the month of December. What would he conclude? What would he conclude that it's about Santa or a savior? About reindeer or the redeemer? About jingle bells or Jesus? I'm afraid, church family, that even in the church, 
that uh, we've lost the meaning and we've lost the focus and we've, we've missed an opportunity to highlight the king of the universe at a time when we would traditionally celebrate his coming, his birth. And I'm not trying to be a wet blanket on, on your Christmas fun and celebrations. Like those are, those are important and they have their place. But I think, church, we have to be asking, are, are, we, are we discipling our kids? Are we effectively shepherding our, our kids, our church family, and this opportunity that we have to focus on the birth of Jesus? Because here's the thing, you are discipling your kids. You are raising up your grandkids and your nieces and your nephews and the children in this church, and you're having an impact on them one way or another, and, and the world certainly is too. And so the question is how? How are you discipling them, and how are you having them think through even holidays and how you spend your holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter? I think we have to be intentional here because the world is. It doesn't take much to look around and, and see that the world has no place for the true meaning of Christmas. A couple quotes for you. Uh, World Net Daily reported in 2004, so it's been a while, in 2004 that in Denver, Colorado, a Christian group was denied permission to participate in the annual Parade of Lights because they planned to sing hymns and say Merry Christmas on their float. That was 2004. That was 2004. This year, that same parade will include floats sponsored by the Homosexual Group of American Indians, belly dancers, and of course, gay Santa. The Chicago Tribune wrote that McHenry County Schools in Illinois gathered parents and teachers and children for a time of holiday cheer at school concerts. They sang Hanukkah, they sang of Hanukkah, gave their rendition of a Jamaican folk song, and did their list for Santa. However, there was, in the spirit of being inclusive, zero mention of Christ or the Christmas story at the Christmas concert. And when asked about this, this is, quote, the slight to the Savior was said to be inadvertent. We just, just missed it. And I'm afraid that's what's happening with us as well, church, is that we're so consumed with the other things that we give a tip of our hat or a nod to the birth of the Savior of the world and slightly more than that. So while the rest of the world may not stop and celebrate this king and his coming, we as Christians should count it all joy that we get to slow down and settle our hearts and reflect this time of the year on the birth of our king, that he would come in our place and die. Even still, I like to do things a little bit different. And so this year for, for our Advent, we're still not going through one of the gospel narratives, right? So that would be the traditional thing to do, to pick one of the gospels and walk through the birth narrative of, of Jesus we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to the Old Testament. As you've already noticed from the reading of our text this morning, specifically the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah. Here's the incredible thing. When you go to Old Testament prophecy and when you go to the, the, the prophecies in the Old Testament and see specifically the birth of Jesus, it does something for us. It gives us a greater and greater confidence that, that he was who he said he was. That Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sins. And all of the things that were said about him in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before he was born, is perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. That does something to our confidence and our faith in him. In fact, there are at least 322 direct prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life. Did you, did you hear that? 322 things that were said about Jesus hundreds of years before he was born that were perfectly fulfilled. 
I can already tell some of this just went whoop. Like that's, like, that's not a big deal or like that, that you're not blown away by that or moved by that. But when you think about the intricate detail to which these prophecies were given and fulfilled in the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, it becomes impossible to say, well, that's just a crazy coincidence, right? Like those things just happen to work out that way, right? Like this is just the, the writers of the Bible weaving the narrative however they, no. Let me, let me explain. Maybe an illustration would help. In the CIA, there are uh, no less than a six-layer process uh, whereby a CIA uh, agent would identify themselves to another agent when in the field, right? When undercover, when doing their job. So for example, this six-layer process, I'm making this one up. This is not an actual one, or at least I hope not. Uh, the, The agent may be told, go to Bunn, North Carolina, and contact Michael Mawing, right? And uh, let him know you're here and give him your name. Your alias is Chris Kringle. And go to Bun Manor Apartments and stay there for six days. On the seventh day, go down to Sister's Cafe and order a cheeseburger minus the beef. Then take your cheesy bread and walk to the, the red light there by the food line and wait for three rotations of the stoplight. Once it's done, throw your cheesy bread down on the ground, walk across the street as soon as you cross, kneel down and tie your shoe, then walk inside the food line. And when you get inside the food line, go and approach the man wearing the flamingo shirt over by the produce and introduce yourself as Count Von Cromie. That sounds absurd, right? Like, that's, that's, that's ludicrous. That's just ridiculous. That was only six signs. Six specific things that a CIA agent would be commanded to do in order to identify themselves to another agent. Jesus had 322 of them. Do you hear the specificity with which Jesus fulfilled these prophecies and the way that that bolsters our confidence in our faith in the Messiah? It should. That every page of your Bible is shouting Jesus' name. I'm not going to cover all of them this morning. There are 322. But just listen to this. As we jog through the Old Testament, as we approach the text we're in this morning, of the the things that were said of Jesus in the Old Testament that we see of him in the New. Genesis 3.15, he's the seed of a woman. Genesis 12.3, he's the offspring of Abraham. Genesis 49.10, he's the tribe of Judah. Numbers 24.17, he's the star come out of Jacob. Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, he's the prophet greater than Moses. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, he's the son of David who will reign forever. Psalm chapter 2, he's the Lord's anointed. Psalm chapter 22, he's the righteous sufferer. Psalm 110, he's the king priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Isaiah 7.14, he's the virgin conceived Emmanuel. Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant of the Lord. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he's the coming son of man. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he's the babe born in Bethlehem. Every page of your Bible is either pointing to him or reflecting on him. He's worthy of our worship, this Christmas church. And so we have to pause and consider this king. And so we're going to settle down in in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And for the next four weeks, we're going to reflect on this king, the king with four names, or the king with four titles or descriptions that are given to him in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll call this series, uh, He Shall Be Called. See the the graphic on the, the screens there? And and we're we're going with this because I think for us, this text, this Old Testament prophecy is really, really familiar. We read it at Christmas time. But we seldom stop and reflect on what each of these names means and why Isaiah would record these specific descriptors of Jesus. Like he could have said anything he wanted to say, but this is what he says. These four things are the way that he identifies the Christ child, the one that would be born, the one that would reign and rule forever. 
And so, with Isaiah chapter 9 still open, we're going to end uh, there in a moment. But before we get to chapter 9 specifically, that prophecy starts back in Isaiah chapter 7. So listen to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what joy-filled verses that that we see here. Uh, Often we hear this during uh, Christmas programs or live nativities, and we should. That's a perfect time to read these texts. Uh, But we have to remember that though we read these things at a time like this, these verses were not written during the warm cozies of Christmas. Christmas time like we think of them, snuggled around the fire reading these, these incredible truths. Give you a little bit of background here. The, the, in the text in Isaiah chapter 7, the year was around 725 BC. And Israel was in a, in a bind because they had the aggressive Assyrian army bearing down on them. This empire was growing. The Assyrians, they were growing and gaining momentum, and they were ruthless. And they had set their gaze on Israel. And Israel's king, King Ahaz, becomes nervous because the Assyrians were forming an army and were going to attack Jerusalem. And so Ahaz is considering his options. Like, should I join an alliance, a military alliance, so that we can come up against Assyria? And if I should join an alliance, which one? How can I trust them? Will they turn and attack me? These are the things that he's doing. And and in the midst of all of that hand-wringing worry that Ahaz is, is growing through, God sends King Ahaz a prophet named Isaiah. And God says through Isaiah, don't worry about alliances. I'm going to protect you. Don't worry about those things. I'm going to protect you. And that should have been enough, right? Right. When God says, I'm going to protect you, that, that's enough. And yet Ahaz was still worried. And Isaiah could, could tell that he was still worried. And so he says to Ahaz, don't worry, Ahaz. God's going to give you a miraculous sign to prove to you that he will be with you if you'll trust him. And here's your sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is where the text gets a little tricky, church. Ready to swim in the, the deep end of the pool this morning? Uh, th- th- this, this, this text is a little bit tricky in that there is a, a partial fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah's day when Ahaz was still king. That some kind of a notable child was born, right? You see that again in chapter 8. Uh, that, that's picked up again in chapter 8. But it's pretty quickly obvious to us and probably to them that Isaiah's prophecy here referring to a child that, that would be born was one that's much more notable than the one that was born in Isaiah's day. How do you know? Well, you say, Matt, how in the world do you get that? Well, you get to chapter 9, the, one where the text we're in this morning, and, and, and you see names like Mighty God and Everlasting Father. And those are clearly inappropriate names for a merely human child, right? That makes sense. We, we don't normally call our kids God uh, or, or Father, Everlasting, Eternal Father. And so we conclude that there was some sort of immediate partial fulfillment in Isaiah's day, in Isaiah's prophecy to King Ahaz, but the complete and true fulfillment of that prophecy wouldn't be realized until Jesus is born, right? As an aside, this is how most biblical prophecy works. There is an immediate fulfillment in the prophet's day. It says, hey, he's not a false prophet. Don't stone him. But then the ultimate fulfillment is in the future, Danny Aiken, Paige Patterson, J.D. Greer have all given this illustration. I think it's helpful that that when you're driving to the mountains, 
Uh, in particular, like the Rocky Mountains, if you've ever driven west and seen them in your horizon as they come up, it looks like as they're on the horizon, these mountain peaks are in a straight line. It looks like they're just forming one mountain range just in a straight line. But as you drive closer, you realize that they're not. They're staggered. And that you may get to one peak or one mountain range, and then you see the others are, are still miles in the distance. And that's sort of how prophecy works. As you read them in the Old Testament, yeah, there's some fulfillment here, but there's some fulfillment beyond here, way down the road in Jesus that's coming. And that's what's going on here. There's some partial fulfillment, but the, the, the ultimate fulfillment is going to be in the birth of Christ. And so you may be wondering, well, how in the world would a prophecy about the birth of Jesus, how in the world is that going to help anything for Ahaz, Right? Like, like if Jesus didn't come for another 700 years, if the Messiah would not be born for another 700 years, how does this answer the problem of the Assyrians and King Ahaz in chapter 9? I mean, he has a vicious army that's at his doorstep that, that wants to destroy his kingdom and everyone in it. That's a huge problem. And how in the world does the birth of Jesus 700 years later help that? I mean, that's 700 years too late. And the reality is that there's many people that feel this way today. Maybe even in this room or on this campus this morning that you feel this way about the Bible. You think to yourself, well, yeah, the Bible, it doesn't address real problems. It doesn't address real need and real situations. Like, 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 like my, my story, my, my, my circumstance, the problem that I'm going through, I love the, the Bible, the sweet little stories, the nursery rhymes, the, the feel-good sentimentality, the, but it doesn't address my need. How does, it, how does it deal with where I'm at? Jesus in a manger and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It all sounds good, but I'm in a real situation, a real problem. Like I lost my job. My marriage is falling apart. My marriage is on the rocks. I don't know if we're going to make it next year. Um, I have chronic pain maybe that, that won't go away, and I've seen doctor after doctor after doctor, and I can't get relief from this, this pain that I'm in. I have real significant problems. How does this heartwarming story of a baby in a manger help with those things? I can imagine King Ahaz probably felt the same way. And he was probably asking similar questions. He literally had an army on his doorstep that wanted to destroy his entire kingdom. What in the world does the prophecy or the promise of a future Messiah do for us now? The birth of Jesus addressed their problem in two ways. Real quickly. First, in sending Jesus, God's dealing with our greatest problem. That's what Ahaz needed to see. In Ahaz's day, it was an approaching enemy, an army, an empire that was barreling down. Today, it may be a, a failing marriage or health problems or economic issues. And while those are significant, while those are real problems and we don't minimize those things, the root of all those problems, our greatest problem is sin. And that's the same in Israel's day and in ours. That sin had to be dealt with because that problem is way more significant. That problem would separate us eternally from a holy God. That's way more significant than anything physical that could happen on this, in this life right now. And in the middle of Ahaz's temporary problem, God speaks clearly about the solution for our eternal problem. Maybe you need to hear that this morning too. That in the midst of your temporary problem, that'll go away someday. God is wanting to speak to you about your greatest problem, your eternal problem the one that he sent his son to solve. And so we cry out to be delivered from bad health, and God wants to deliver us ultimately from the curse of death that causes bad health. We cry out because we want to be delivered from broken relationships, and God wants to deliver us ultimately from sin and selfishness that causes those broken relationships. We cry out because we want victory from our struggles, from our pain, from our agony, and God sent a Messiah who's already overcome the world. And so this prophecy to Ahaz was a sign that God was dealing with their true and ultimate problem and ours. 
Ultimate salvation from Israel is not going to come from a warrior, right? That's going to wield a sword and defeat earthly enemies. Ultimate salvation is going to come from a baby born just like us. And that one that lived a perfect life, the life we were supposed to live, and died the death that we deserve to die in our place. That's the way that, that Jesus is solving our greatest problem in giving his life for ours. But then second, that's the first way Jesus addresses our problem and Ahaz's. The second, though, very specifically, this text spoke to their situation and ours by giving four relational names, four things that God would be for them and for us in Jesus. So Isaiah 9, verse 6. Look at this text again with me and observe these four names. Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Pastor James Merritt, he said this 700 years before the wise men gave, the angels sang, or the shepherds came. Isaiah explains what Christmas is all about in the cornerstone and centerpiece of all of prophecy. So we'll look at these verses and this, these names today and for the next three weeks and observe how Christ is fulfilling them and how he is them for us in our day. So look at the first one with me this morning, Wonderful Counselor. This name is a, a description of Jesus, and it's actually two words in the Hebrew. Uh, Pele, which means beyond understanding, means it's too wonderful for words. Whatever is Pele is too wonderful for words, and that's what Isaiah says when the Messiah comes. There would be no words that could describe him. We would be left speechless. That he would be so glorious, so magnificent, so awesome, that there is no way that you could describe this Messiah. This is also another way that we know that Isaiah is speaking of of someone who's coming, not in Ahaz's day, who's merely human, but someone who's coming, that would be God. Because in the the Hebrew, in this word, Pele, it's never used to describe a, a human being's actions or character or who they are. It's only ever used of who God is and what God has done. In your, in, your, in your entire scripture, this word Pele. And so we know it's, it's, it's pointing us forward to one who's going to come. It's wonderful. Pele, wonderful. And then the second word, if you thought that one was strange, is Yaoletz. Yaoletz. It translates counselor. One who advises or guides or instructs. But here's the key. It's someone who advises or guides or instructs from a position of authority. There's a distinction that we need to see. We live, uh, church, in a day of the counselor, of the psychiatrist, of the therapist. Uh, it's, been, it's been said that the counselor is someone who will help you organize your hang-up so that you can be unhappy more efficiently. <laughs> Maybe that's true. Not sure. Though we, call, we don't call them counselors, the idea of a counselor or someone who advises or instructs, that's a common theme we see in Scripture. You think just quickly that it was by the instruction of a bad counselor that humanity fell into sin. Right? Satan counseled Eve, got her involved in some psychoanalysis, doubting what she knew to be true and what she'd been told. And then Eve got Adam involved in some counseling, some group therapy, where they began to play the blame game. And, uh, and, and the whole world was plunged into insanity, and we've been playing the blame game ever since. Yet, though we were ruined by a bad counselor, it's clear, even from our text this morning, that we'll be redeemed by the good counselor. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 teaches us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Literally, wisdom personified as a, as a person, like we see in Proverbs. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says that, uh, that Jesus says that, uh, Come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I'll give you rest. This is a rest of body, of mind, and of soul. And not even the best counselors in all of the world, with the best training in all of the world, can provide that sort of rest and healing and comfort. And so Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He fits both of those descriptions. So what do we see from his life, Jesus' life, even his birth, that would help us to rest in this truth today, that would help us to come to the wonderful counselor and find healing and, and rest and hope this morning? You see, earthly human counselors are trained, and they, they, they receive training so that they can hear your situation, and then they can speak into it. They can give counsel or instruction based upon their life experiences or even experiences that are not theirs, but that they've learned through case studies or their education. They can, they can through their training, offer you wisdom and instruction. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says. This is going to be a key and crucial text for us this morning as we seek to understand Jesus as our wonderful counselor. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, believer, this morning, that you would let the, the, the wonderful counselor bring you rest today. That at the beginning of this Advent season, you would just come to this counselor and find hope and rest for this season. Let this king, not just one who would lord over you, but also a brother who lived among us, let this king bring you rest. And I think we see that in at least a couple ways in that Hebrews text. So here's a couple ways. Uh, that we see this wonderful counselor and experience him, the relationship we have with him this Christmas season. Number one, the wonderful counselor relates fully. The wonderful counselor relates fully. He's walked through the things that we walk through. He's, uh, he's been through struggles of, of, of life and the hurts and pains of this life. And so there's nothing that you're going to go through that he's not experienced. That's what Hebrews 4 is telling us. I mean, think about even the Christmas story and his birth and what it shows us about Jesus. The one thing that you may note quickly in the story of Jesus' birth and in all of the gospels that speak to it is that Jesus was born into the worst kind of poverty, right? Like, yes, Jesus, I mean, yes, Israel is oppressed and they're, they're poor and, and don't have a lot of things going for them as a nation. They're under the, the, the rule of Rome and, and things are, are, are pretty down. But even among them, Mary and Joseph appear to be the poorest of the poor. And you see this in several ways. This is coming from uh, Tim Keller's work on this, on this subject. He says, you see this, that he was born in a stable. I mean, we, 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 we glance over this so often at Christmas, and, and we, we, we hear the text. Like, we know the text almost by memory, by heart, because there was no room for them in the end. But if you have a stack of Benjamin Franklins in your wallet, they will make room for you in the end. They will push folks out of the way and say, hey, this man's important. He needs a place in the end. Joseph didn't. He, he didn't have means. He, he couldn't provide that for his very pregnant wife. And so what do they do? They make, make do in a stable used for animals. And it may look quaint and it may look cute for the Christmas program at, at preschool. But I can promise you this. Like no woman wants to give birth outside in the cold of a Jerusalem winter night in a stable with the smell of cows and livestock all around them. Right? Like it didn't smell like cinnamon and nutmeg like your house does right now because it's Christmas time. This is the way Jesus was born. This is, we, we see poverty, deep poverty in Jesus' birth. But there's also another way we see it, and it's dedication. When they brought him to the temple to dedicate him, his parents presented a pigeon as a sacrifice. 
a pigeon instead of a lamb. You know why they did that? Because that was a provision made for the poorest of the poor that couldn't afford anything else. They gave a pigeon. So, so get this. Wrap your mind around this. This, this struck me this week, and it was, it, was, it was such a weighty thought that Jesus' family was so poor, they couldn't fulfill the requirements of the law that he, that Jesus had made in the Old Testament, that he had decreed, right? So he makes this provision, and I just have to, I just have to imagine the joy in Jesus' heart as he's giving the law to the, to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and he makes this provision for a, a pigeon to be made at the birth of a, of a son, and he knows that his mother and father, his earthly mother and father, are going to have to do that very thing for him when he puts on flesh and comes to live in our place. What a thought. This poverty, this, this poverty that we see at his birth and his dedication is laying down a pattern for us that we would see the rest of his life. He was born in a manger. He would die on a cross. At, at his birth, the innkeeper would say, there's no room for you. And at his death, the crowds would cry, essentially the same thing, there's no room for you. Give us Barabbas instead. At his birth, he was wrapped in rags. At his death, he was stripped down two rags in shame and in nakedness. At his birth, he was ignored by the world. In his death, rejected by the world and his father. Why do I point out this, this pattern of poverty and struggle and rejection and pain in the life of Jesus? Because we need to see in Hebrews chapter 4 that he is the wonderful counselor that brings true rest because, and precisely because, he is not unable to sympathize us in our weaknesses. Like, he gets it. He gets it. Friend, you can come to this counselor because you can trust that he will meet you where you are, and in whatever brokenness you're in, he understands the struggle and the pain is real. He felt it himself. There's another observation in Hebrews 4 that we need to see in regard to the wonderful counselor. Not only can he relate fully, but the wonderful counselor listens sympathetically. If you continue in that Hebrews 4, that Hebrews 4 passage, it says that Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So as a result of that, listen to verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and, and help in time of need. Somebody needs to hear this. I just believe this morning needs to hear this, that there is no time. There is no time when you're going to come to Jesus with a need and Jesus come to you and say, not right now, I'm too busy. I do that to my kid a lot. You're not going to find that with Jesus. You're not going to come to Jesus and find him preoccupied with more important things. You're not going to come to him and, and be put off or, or, or shrugged away. Jesus is available and he listens sympathetically. And so whatever your need is and whenever your need arises, you can go to this counselor immediately and every time. And we see this throughout Jesus' life in the Gospels. He came for people with problems. And we see it over and over and over again. J.D. Greer says, every miracle that Jesus ever did started with a problem. Did you think about that? That ever occurred to you? Like every miracle Jesus did started with a problem. His miracles weren't like magic tricks. Like, all right, and for our next trick to prove that I'm the Messiah, I'm going to levitate. Watch and be amazed, right? That wasn't what Jesus did. The wonderful counselor listens sympathetically because he came to this world for people with problems. The first of which is our problem with sin. And even as he said himself, he didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. He didn't come to reward the righteous, but to redeem the sinner. That's us. And so if that's true, if Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and in Hebrews 4, we see him uh, as the one who is listening sympathetically, as the one who can fully relate to us, that's a good counselor, then, then, then how in the world do we approach this counselor? How do we interact with this counselor? How do we find rest and hope in this counselor this Christmas? 
I want to end our time this morning, the, the last half of our time this morning, offering you three just, just applications, three thoughts to consider as you approach this counselor, the wonderful counselor, King Jesus. So number one, if you're a note taker, these are the action steps. Number one, be brutally honest with this counselor. Counselors will tell you that, 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 that until you are really honest about your problems, you can't really get help with them. And that, that, that stinks for us because we often don't want to be brutally honest, right? We want to keep the truth hidden for some reason. Maybe we're ashamed of the truth. Or maybe we're deceived about how bad the truth is. We don't think it's as bad as it really is. Or maybe we don't want to admit how bad it is because it'll get worse. And we think it'll get worse if anyone really knows the depths of how bad this situation is or how, how dark this thing is in our heart. And so be brutally honest with the wonderful counselor. Why? Because he already knows anyways. Like you can be brutally honest with this counselor because he already knows what you're trying to hide. We see this in the Bible, don't we? And in each of these, these application points, we're going to see these in the Gospels because that's where we see Jesus interacting with people. That's where we see Jesus interacting with problems. And so that's, that's where we'll make the application this morning in our text. John chapter 4, all right? You see a story about a woman, and she is really messed up. She has some serious problems. She has a, a string of failed marriages. She's in the midst of, a, of an adulterous relationship, and she is deeply broken and hurting. And Jesus walks up to her, and he asks her a question. And then he ends up telling her, go get your husband. And he's setting her up. You know what he's doing, right? Now, in that moment, she can tell the truth or she can lie. So what does she do? Well, kind of something in the middle. She says, I have no husband. Well, that's kind of true. And so Jesus, seeing all that's going on here, knowing what's happening, she's trying to, to keep the truth from coming out, the real truth from coming out, because she's afraid that the whole truth, if she's brutally honest, it's going to scare Jesus away. And she's enjoying this interaction. And so Jesus finally looks at her and says, I know you've had five husbands. And I know that right now you're currently living in adultery. And I knew that when I entered into this conversation. I wasn't afraid then, and, and, and I wasn't afraid of your situation when I walked up. And I'm not afraid of your situation now. I came to you still, and I'm still standing here. You can be brutally honest with the wonderful counselor. He knows already. And here's the thing, church. If you're just sitting there weighing, like, can I bring this to the Lord? There is nothing that you're going to confess to the wonderful counselor that will scare him away or keep him from loving you. Do you realize that? That on your knees, as you come to this counselor, you can be brutally honest, and there's nothing that's going to scare him away. There's nothing that you could reveal to him in being brutally honest that his blood's not already covered. There's nothing that you could share that his blood can't transform or heal or mend this morning, church. So be brutally honest with this counselor. Second is this. As we apply and, and, and live out this, our relationship with the wonderful counselor, consider the counselor's call to be healed. Consider the counselor's call to be healed. In next chapter, John chapter 5, Jesus comes up to a paralyzed man. This man's been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus walks up and asks this question. He says, do you want to be healed? <laughs> and I, I've read this like a zillion times, and I always think my, my knee-jerk reaction is when I read this, this question from Jesus, I'm like, that's a weird question. Like, that's a strange question. Who wouldn't want to be healed? You haven't walked for 38 years. Wouldn't it be incredible to, to walk again? And here's why Jesus is saying this. Here's what he's getting at. Most people want the benefits of being healed. <laughs> want to walk. But they don't want to go through the painful choices that must accompany that healing. 
They, want to, they don't want to go through the transformation that comes with that healing. We want God to clean up the mess in our lives without dealing with the choices and patterns that have brought us into that mess in the first place. And to be changed, you have to hear the counselor's voice. The wonderful counselor is here for you. Hear his voice and then yield to him in the hard work that's going to come with it to be healed. And it's not an either and, but it's a, it's a both or. When, when you hear his voice, what did Jesus say? That, that, that my sheep, they, they, they hear my voice, they know my voice. And so even right now, as he speaks to us through his word, hear his voice and yield to him. He's inviting you right now to, to bring the hurt, to bring the pain, to bring the struggles to him. And at the same time, he's inviting you to do the hard work of him changing you. And so yield to him, even if it's hard. Yield to him, even if it's hard. Like a child, right? Like I, we, I was lost one time in a theme park. I don't know, I was probably seven or eight years old. And I was wigging out. Like, I'd lost sight of my parents. It was a busy place. I didn't know where they were. And I was in full, like, <laughs> mode. You know how when you cry so hard, you can't even catch your breath? It was that kind of cry. And then all of a sudden, I heard my dad say, Matthew, in a moment, just that quickly, it was done. I was fine. I heard his voice. I knew dad's voice. And I knew wherever dad was that I was safe. And the same thing is with our wonderful counselor. Hear his voice this morning. Consider his call to be healed and be willing to go through the hard stuff that it may take to be healed as he works in your heart to transform your life. Third thing is this. Third observation in, in, in coming to this counselor, our relationship with the wonderful counselor, is do whatever the counselor commands of you. Do whatever the counselor commands of you. Remember we made this distinction when we started looking at Isaiah chapter 9, uh, that in the Hebrew, yaolets, that word for counselor, it's a very specific word that's not just one who guides or advises or gives instruction, but, it, but it's one who does those things with authority. That's important for us because this is Jesus. He offers hope, he offers healing, he offers instruction, he offers wisdom, but you have to do whatever he tells you. So would you make that commitment today? Like, in, 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 in fact, would you make that commitment anytime you come to the Word? Like whether you're sitting down to, to read your Bible by yourself or whether you're sitting down in one of these pews to hear a sermon and the Word of God explained, would you make that commitment that I'll do whatever you say? Like before you ever even read the text or hear the, the, the Word of the Lord read to you, say, God, if you speak to me in your Word today, I make you this commitment, I make you this promise, I'll do it. Whatever it is, I'll do it. And even if that seems extreme or crazy or, or out of the ordinary, whatever the thing is that you speak to me, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to him. This is one of the things that stick out to us in the Gospels. Just how many times Jesus commands someone to do something that is completely strange, right? Like there's not just one example of this. There are numerous examples of this. John chapter 9, Jesus uh, spits on the ground and he makes this little mud pie out of the, the dirt and the, 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 the spit. And he takes those little mud pies and he puts them in a blind man's eyes. Can you imagine what that was like to watch it or to be the blind man and it was happening to? Then he says, hey, go down to the pool of Siloam and wash and you'll be healed. Why in the world didn't he just snap his fingers and heal him? He could have done it that way. He could have just said, be healed. And he would have had sight. In fact, he did it like that in other places. Matthew chapter 17, Peter needs to, to pay a bill. He has a debt. And Jesus says, hey, go down and catch a fish, just one fish. And when you open that fish's mouth, there's going to be a gold coin, the exact amount that you need to pay your debt. Why did he do that? Why all this fishy business? Why not just snap and give him a coin? Be done with it. It saves time. It's more efficient. Jesus was doing that to show us that sometimes obedience doesn't make sense. Sometimes obedience to Christ does not make sense to the world or the people around you or even to you. Like, extend forgiveness to that person, Matthew. 
but they've sinned against me. They've hurt me. They've, they've ridiculed me or my family. How can I extend forgiveness there? Or, or maybe uh, Jesus says, uh, end a relationship with someone at work or a relationship that you have with someone because it's toxic. And you say, but God, you know how, how I need that. You know how I need relationship. I'm lonely. I need that sort of uh, friendship and, and relationship. It doesn't make sense. Or, or God says, give sacrificially. He's calling you. He's put something on your heart to give sacrificially to. And you say, but God, how, how can I do that? How will I be able to afford it? You know how my bills are already stretching me now. I'm not going to be able to make ends meet if I do that. In those moments, Jesus is asking us, just like with mud pies and the fishing adventure, do you really trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to do the thing I'm telling you to do when it seems crazy, weird, or out of the ordinary? Man, the wonderful counselor desires intimacy with us. He wants to heal us. He wants to mend our brokenness, but you have to be unhesitatingly obedient. So will you give him your yes before you even ask him your question? Would we do that? Would we resolve to do that, church? Jesus, my yes is on the table before I even ask you my question. Whatever you say, I'll do. Whatever marching orders you give me, I'm going to step in them. Well, in the case of the, 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 the crippled man and, and, the, and the mud pie thing and, and Jesus with the, the fish and Peter fishing for a coin, in all of those ways, they responded in obedience and Jesus healed or he mended or he performed a miracle whereby they're made whole. Are there any stories in the Bible where Jesus tells someone to do something and it sounds crazy and they don't do it? There is. Sadly, there is. Matthew tells us about a man who's young and he's rich and he's the ruler of a lot of people. He basically has everything the, the, the world could offer. By the world's standard, he has it made. And yet he's empty and he's broken and he knows, he knows that there has to be something more to life. He knows that there has to be something more. And so he meets Jesus and they're having this incredible conversation. And in the middle of that conversation, Jesus commands him to do something that seems absolutely mind-boggling. Jesus says, go and, and sell your possessions. Remember, he had a lot because he was a rich, young guy. He says, go and sell everything that you have and leave it and come and follow me. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. It was too crazy. It was too insane. He, he simply walks away from Jesus. And the text tells us that Jesus loved him. The text tells us that, that he, he desired to have this, this relationship with him, that eternal life was on the line. That was the stakes. And yet this young man wouldn't lay it all down to follow Jesus. What a sad, sad ending to that story. And listen, I have no doubt that there are some here today that you may be interested in following Jesus. There may be some interesting, maybe you even think that you have been following Jesus. For some time you thought, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet there are areas of your life that you've not let Jesus have, that you're holding on to for yourself. You haven't yielded to Christ, certain convictions that you've not surrendered to him, certain relationships or habits or addictions that you've held on to for yourself. Your experience with a wonderful counselor will release you from those things and bring you great joy and peace and rest this season. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't negotiate. He doesn't strike a bargain. He doesn't come to you and say, well, here's, here's the deal. And we'll come back and forth and we'll negotiate and bargain and then we'll settle on some terms. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He makes one deal. All of himself, all of eternity, all of God, all of heaven for the surrender of you. Unhesitating surrender of yourself. That you would say, I submit to your lordship. I repent of my sins. You are the one I'm following from this day forward. That's the deal. And so as we close this morning, church, three questions. Number one, are you being brutally honest with the wonderful counselor? Are you being brutally honest with him? 
Number two, are you really considering the counselor's call to be healed? Like, like, would you know his voice if he spoke? Would you hear him and would you yield to him? And would you say, Lord, what, whatever you call and whatever you ask, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do because I'm hearing your voice and I'm considering the call to be healed and I know that it's going to come with, with some hard things, with some change and transformation that's not easy. So were you hearing his voice? And then third, third, are you at the point where you would do anything that the wonderful counselor commands for you to do? And this morning, make that commitment. Resolve in your heart. Say, this, this Christmas is going to be like, unlike any other because this year I am single-mindedly focused on my counselor, the wonderful counselor who has, has in himself fullness and joy and rest for me. And I'll do whatever he says. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much this morning that as we look back on Isaiah chapter 9, we see in Christ our wonderful counselor who relates fully to our situation and yet listens sympathetically when we come to him with our brokenness, with our hurt, with our sins, with our baggage, with our dirtiness, offers us healing and hope. And so, Father, even as I pray right now, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in hearts that, God, if there are those here this morning that have never yielded to, to Christ, have never repented of their sins and followed after Christ, that today would be the day when they would do that. And then for believers in this room, that this, this moment there would be resolve in, in, in men and women's hearts that, that they, would, they would say yes, that their yes would be on the table before they even ask the question. That if they're seeking guidance or wisdom or direction, maybe big decisions coming up in this, this season or this next year, that they would be sensitive to your leading and that they would give you their yes before they even ask their question. God, I pray that we would find rest and healing and hope in the wonderful counselor this Christmas season. Help us to pause and to step back, to pump the brakes, do whatever we have to do to slow down the, the, the busyness and everything that's going on with the Christmas season and the culture that we live in so that Christ would be exalted in our hearts above all other things. That's your place. That's your place of worth, Christ. That you be exalted over all. And so we give you our hearts, and even in this time of response, pray that you would stir, that you would work, that you would mold and shape us to look more like Christ. In whose name we make our prayer. Amen.